Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In 1975, Arthur K. Wheelock Jr. was appointed curator of Northern Baroque paintings at the National Gallery of Art. During his nearly 40 years in the position, Wheelock has cared for, cultivated, and strengthened the Dutch and Flemish paintings collection. He has also fostered an impressive exhibition program, including Anthony Van Dyke of 1990, Johannes Vermeer, The Art of Painting of 1999, Rembrandt's Late Religious Portraits, 2005, Jan Lievens, A Dutch Master Rediscovered in 2008, and Judith Leister, 1609-1660, in 2009. In this lecture recorded on December 15, 2013, Wheelock shares the history of the Dutch and Flemish collection and special exhibitions while looking toward the future of curatorial responsibility. I thought it would be interesting at some point to help the world figure out what a curator does. <laughs> this is one of the questions that I'm always asked and one of the best-kept secrets in museum life, obviously. Um, and as a question that clearly bedeviled my father in the early 1970s when I got this position here at the National Gallery, uh, he wanted to know what I would do as a custodian, you know, which was the way the night watchman was always referred to in our family textile mill. Well, Dad wasn't too wrong on that score, um, but keeping things neat and tidy is only one of my responsibilities um, in the position. But he clearly, as I said, was not the only one who couldn't figure out what a curator does. And I have had that question asked to me frequently over the years, and so it seemed that it might be a worthy topic for a talk like this. So the first thing I should acknowledge, of course, is that I was totally unqualified for a position of Dutch curator when I was named curator in 1975. I had studied art history and written my dissertation on 17th century Dutch art, but what did that really teach me about being a curator? Uh, not much. Uh, and so I began this job as an innocent, but fortunately for me and for the National Gallery, it was an innocent period and the circumstances I encountered here helped me grow slowly along a path that has been a wonderful learning experience. And it's that path that I would like to share with you today with a particular focus on the conflicting demands that developed over the years of cataloging a museum's permanent collection and organizing temporary exhibitions, a challenge that every museum curator now faces in trying to balance the many demands on our time and energy. Forty years ago, <clears throat> museum life was much quieter than it is now. Acquisitions, at least at the National Gallery, were few and far between. Exhibitions were not as frequently scheduled, and museum publications were less ambitious in scope. Color reproductions, whether in collection catalogs or those of temporary exhibitions, were rare. In fact, it was even unusual for all the works to be illustrated. For example, the most important museum catalog for me during my student years in the 1960s and early 1970s was Neil McLaren's 1960 catalog of the Dutch paintings at the National Gallery in London, which had no illustrations at all. I mean, it's hard to imagine. This is really what it was like. So other than from McLaren, texts of most museum catalogs were cursory, often containing little more than basic information of title and size, et cetera, as was the case here at the National Gallery. And this was the catalog that we had here uh, in those years. 
In the 1970s, however, museums began to change. They were becoming more dynamic institutions and started vying with universities as places for research and scholarly inquiry. At the National Gallery, young curators like me, John Hand and David Allen Brown, were brought aboard to study the works in the permanent collections. Indeed, it is remarkable how many of my colleagues in Dutch art in museums around the world began their careers about the same time, including Peter Scottborn and Walter Kluck at the Rijksmuseum, Fritz Du Park in the Moritz House, Christopher Brown in the National Gallery in London, and Walter Liedke at the Met. Those of us who became curators in the early 1970s were encouraged to spend time researching the collection. In part, because of the exception of the National Gallery in London, most museum catalogs were badly out of date. And this was the operative catalog for the Moritz House, which had been written in 1895. We could spend hours, days, even weeks in print rooms, painting galleries, and libraries in research and writing. And this is our research area at the National Gallery in those days. We transcribed documents by hand, then produced final copies on a typewriter, of all things. Xerox machines were our lifeblood for bringing home text from out-of-print or difficult-to-reach publications. It was an exciting time of discovery and realization that we could make a difference. Although we worked quietly in our own institutions, often by ourselves, we also relied on each other, us curators from around the world. Long-distance communication was done primarily through hand-written letters and phone calls, occasional phone calls, not many. Um, calling Europe was a very expensive deal. <clears throat> but the most rewarding form of communication was personal contact. Whenever I was able to come to Europe and visit one of the great museums that held the artistic treasures, like the Rijksmuseum on the left and the Moritz House on the right, I only knew by reputation I was invariably welcomed by colleagues who had wandered through their collections with me. I always left with enhanced understanding of familiar paintings and discoveries about artists who were totally new to me. These opportunities to look, discuss, and reflect provided the foundation for the connoisseurship that would be an essential component of my curatorial life. Over the years, these personal relationships would continue to grow and deepen, with which would also inevitably be of great significance for loans and exhibitions. I suppose that this lesson was the most important one that I can share with you today. Very little can be accomplished in life without the trust and respect of friends and colleagues. <clears throat> when I first arrived at the National Gallery in the summer of 1973, <laughs> I, I came as a Finley Fellow, um, having already finished my dissertation on Vermeer and optics. It was an exciting time to come to this important institution, but in retrospect, it was an entirely different museum than it is now. And that is part of the story I would like to tell. The National Gallery was, in fact, a rather new museum, having only opened in 1941. <clears throat> Thus, it was only 32 years old when I got here. Thanks to the primarily generosity of Andrew Mellon on the left and, and uh, P.A.B. Widener on the uh, excuse me, uh, Mellon on the right and Widener on the left. It had a great collection of Dutch and Flemish paintings with a heavy concentration on works by 
um, Rembrandt um, here on the left, and uh, Halls, Albert Kalp, and Anthony Van Dyck. And just so you know, the Rembrandt's famous painting in the middle was the mill, and that's the way it looked back then. Um, and here is the, the Van Dykes, the Irene Gamaldi, and the two children. And um, she stands in the middle with a little clearly on the, on the right in that uh, photograph of the galleries in those days. <clears throat> Remarkably, from the time the gallery opened, or since Widener's gift came in 1943, only 12 additional Dutch paintings had been added to the collection. Although these works were somewhat expanded, the range and types of paintings represented, particularly um, the Bliss gift of Judith Leister's self-portrait in 1946 and two wonderful paintings by Peter Sonradam that uh, the Cress uh, collection donated in 1961. The predominant Mellon and Widener taste, which over time has proved to be an exceedingly unbalanced presentation of Dutch art, and that's the story I want to get to, had changed but little. <clears throat> In fact, the Dutch collection, Dutch and Flemish collections were not particularly large, numbering 72 Dutch and 35 Flemish paintings. Not large for a great national museum, that is. <clears throat> Until 1970, the gallery had been a very conservative and quiet institution. It had a small curatorial staff few educational programs, and no conservation department. Change, however, occurred when J. Carter Brown became the director, and it's Carter on the left, <clears throat> and together with his deputy director, um, Chuck Parkhurst, on the right, he established a conservation department and began to beef up the curatorial ranks. <clears throat> when I arrived in 1973, virtually no research had been done on the Dutch and Flemish paintings since there had never been a curator responsible for those works. Thus, for a young art historian, I entered an amazingly fortuitous situation. Here was a major collection that had never been carefully researched. Most of the curatorial files for the paintings were empty or at best filled with old correspondence or discolored typescripts um, such as these, uh, which were in the file for the Rembrandt self-portrait um, from dealers who had once handled these works. The files needed help, and I was more than willing to oblige. I was fortunate that during my year as a Finley Fellow, 1973, <clears throat> the gallery had invited Bob DeFries, the former director of the Moritz House, to be in residence as the so-called Crest Professor. DeFries was a great storyteller beyond his other attributes, and I learned much just by listening to accounts of his earlier life as an art historian. <clears throat> One story that really resonated with me, and I could spend the whole hour with Bob DeFree's stories, but, anyhow, but this one is important for my learning process, and that was about the time he was an assistant to the director of the Rijksmuseum, Schmidt Degener, in the 1930s. One day, when DeFries was in the director's office, some art handlers wheeled in Albert Kelp's Massa Dordrecht. Schmidt Dagener looked at it and said, Kaup, why? He's not worthy of the Rijksmuseum, and they wheeled the painting right out. Whoa. The story was a shock because we all consider this masterpiece one of the five greatest Dutch paintings in the National Gallery. Um, so, from the story, I learned a couple of important lessons. 
The first is that it made me realize that the paintings in this collection all had had previous lives. And what were those lives? Where had they been? What did people think about them? These sort of started me thinking about the history of paintings before arriving at the National Gallery. The second was that different values were sometimes placed on works of art in different countries. Why did the Dutch not like Kaup? We love Kaup. You know, what, was, what, what is that story? What goes behind that? And also the fascinating change of the canon and what was valued at different time, periods of time. Now, the, the Rijksmuseum has always regretted they didn't buy this painting, and only recently were they able to get something you know, almost as good, but not as good. But it's interesting. The canon has changed. For, in the 1930s, that was not an artist that the Rijksmuseum felt was worthy of that collection. The early 1970s <clears throat> was a time of scholarly ferment in the Dutch the study of Dutch and Flemish paintings. And with de Vries as my mentor, we initially decided to carefully examine the Vermeer paintings in the, in the collection. Um, he had written a book on Vermeer. I had done my dissertation on Vermeer, so this was a sort of pure place of, of great mutual interest. And just prior to uh, my arriving here, um, a Dutch art historian had questioned the girl with the red hat and called it a 19th century French painting in the style of Degas. Um, So, well, that was interesting. So together with Kay Silberfeld, a member of the newly formed conservation department, we took the Vermeer paintings one by one to the laboratory to study them under the microscope in infrared light, take x-rays, and in general find out as much as we could about the master's painting techniques. I also did a story, I mean a study of their provenance, where they had, where they had been, and what were the history of the collection. Right away it was easy to say, well, that theory of a Degas follower is not right because the painting was known in the early 19th century. So um, you could correct some misjudgments just on that basis. So we were in the lab, and we, we were able to study it, and we saw in the x-rays and infrared a strange shape in this painting. of that's, You can see the, the, the girl here. Um, there's a hat, and there's a face, but there's this big shape here. So if you turn that shape around, turn the panel around, it turns out to be a portrait of a man underneath. So we're able to find information about... Um, stay that for a second, information about the painting um, that raised all sorts of questions about the technique and what was done and why the painting looked the way it did. It was a great lesson in connoisseurship and a reminder that nothing replaces close study of an object in coming to attribution questions. My first responsibilities thus as a fellow was to write about the National Gallery's Vermeer paintings, which for someone who had written his dissertation on the optics of Vermeer's work was an exciting way to be introduced to the collection. Um, Still quite amazing. Aside from my experience um, with the the Vermeer's... um, with, excuse me, aside from my experience with the Vermeer's, the other vivid memory of my fellowship year remains the experience of examining the Rembrandt paintings with Bob DeFries and Silberfeld. Our curiosity about Rembrandt attributions had been piqued by controversies that had recently rocked the art world. In his 1969 publication of Abraham Brady's Corpus of Rembrandt Paintings, Horst Gerson had questioned the attribution of many paintings traditionally attributed to Rembrandt. 
including a number of the gallery's prized works, including this painting, um, 1650 self-portrait of Rembrandt that P.A.B. Widener had proudly acquired in 1908. Although Garrison's critical assessments cast a pall over the entire collection, his conclusions had remained summarily rejected within the gallery, which had remained in a time warp little interested in re-examining attributions of paintings on its walls. Garrison, as was pointed out to me, had never closely studied these paintings, but even if he wanted to, he would have had a hell of a time finding any firmer assessment than he did with his publication. The paintings were difficult to see, covered as they were with thick layers of discolored varnish. The poor lighting in the galleries complicated the situation. And just to let you know what we are looking at here, we are looking at um, this painting, St. Paul, now cleaned, and this painting is the descent from the cross, um, now cleaned. <clears throat> but that's what it looked like. And basically, this is at noon. Um, you come in at 10 o'clock, and it's dark, and come back at 3, 3.30, and you won't see anything either, I mean, even worse. So this was, this was the experience of looking at these galleries. It was quite amazing. <clears throat> so to improve the situation, DeFree, Silberfeld, and I studied close, uh, closed the Rembrandt rooms day after day, brought in step ladders, strong lights, ultraviolet lights and magnifying glasses to learn more about the paint layers and the old restorations that lay beneath the discolored varnish covering all these works. Occasionally, we were joined by other scholars, among them Jakob Rosenberg, who was my professor uh, early on, one of the great authorities in Dutch art, Egbert Havakant Begman here on the, on the right, and my professor at Harvard, Seymour Slive, on the left, um, and our discussions would become even more involved. This Rembrandt project continued after the end of my fellowship in April 1974, for the gallery then hired me on as a part-time research curator. <clears throat> During that period, I was also able to exa- travel to examine Rembrandt paintings in other collections. And shortly after I was appointed curator in the fall of 1975, Kay Silberfeld and I brought Rembrandt Saskia to the lab for technical examinations and conservation treatment. Here's an x-ray of Saskia, and this is, I'm not going to discuss it much, just to say, well, one thing that's very clear, that there's an addition on the left and at the bottom, which you can now see after it's been cleaned, but that painting used to be framed out to include those areas, but these were much later additions. Um, and we could see lots of changes in the 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 collar, for example, was very different. All sorts of changes throughout the painting that we could see in the x-rays. <clears throat> the results of the cleaning were dramatic, both in restoring the vibrancy of the image and revealing the subtle brushwork of the master that had been suppressed by thick layers of varnish. The success of this restoration inspired us to continue with a systematic program to examine and conserve, whenever possible, each of the Rembrandts. And so we even brought in specialists to study the panels, the wood. Um, And this is a slide of um, yours truly here, together with Professor Bauch from Germany. This is Professor Bauch and John Hand. Some of you may recognize John Hand. Um, Studying um, the the panel to to study dendrochronology, the the age of the panel, so we could help date paintings by the kind of wood that was used to to paint them. 
The plan to examine and conserve the Rembrandt paintings was in part stimulated by a decision the gallery made in the 1980s to embark on a series of systematic catalogs of its paintings. We curators were charged with producing written entries on the works in our collections. By the time the Dutch collection catalog was published in 1995, most of the Rembrandt paintings had been cleaned and attributions had been carefully assessed. The most controversial restoration project, <clears throat> um, of course, was the mill, <clears throat> which many loved for its brown tones and deeply brooding character. A number of you may remember that removing the discolored varnish that obscured the blue sky underneath the varnish embroiled the National Gallery in a conservation controversy in the late 1970s and early 1980s that threatened to close down the conservation program, but that is another story. Nevertheless, one of the powerful lessons that came from that experience was to really realize the emotional impact of the art of the, the, the art in this gallery had on museum visitors. We retain deep within our psyche images of works that have made an impact on us. And when those works are changed in appearance, either through cleaning, reframing, or occasionally even as a result of rehanging galleries, the changes can feel disorienting and even threatening. This issue is one that came to the fore with the restoration of the mill, and I quickly learned that what we do in caring for our collection has a large impact in the public sphere, and we have to be very, very careful and cautious about how we go about that process and explain it to the public. Not surprising, given the large scale of this collection, not all the Rembrandt paintings turned out to be entirely by the master's own hand. Assessing these attribution concerns has been a complex and controversial endeavor, often argued about in the press. It has taken me years to get a handle on these issues, and I am very grateful. I must say I get more and more confused by Rembrandt all the time, but that's also another story. Um, I'm very grateful to the close collaboration I've had with the gallery's excellent scientific and conservation staffs to help in this process. By the time that the catalog of the Dutch collection was published in 1995 again, I had reattributed a number of the Rembrandt paintings, including the Widener self-portrait. Oh, that's the catalog, uh, the 1995 catalog. And go back to the Widener self-portrait that Garrison had questioned. He, it turns out, was absolutely right in his doubts. Even if he had never examined his X-ray, studied those layers of Um, pigments or saw it without the heavy tinted layers of discolored varnish. And my hat is really off to him. Congratulations, Mr. Garrison. That was a good call. Initially, the Dutch and Flemish paintings were planned for one volume, but it soon became clear that two volumes would be necessary. Partly because the issues surrounding the Rembrandt paintings were so topical, I decided to place my energies there. The decision to focus on the Dutch catalog was also due to an exhibition of the paintings of Anthony van Dyck, which the gallery, and that's the catalog on the left, the gallery organized in 1990-91 to celebrate the 350th anniversary of that artist's death. <clears throat> Since so many of the gallery's great van Dyck's were discussed in that exhibition catalog, <clears throat> it seemed that it could serve, that catalog that is, 
temporarily to provide a scholarly framework for the Flemish collections, Flemish paintings in the collection. And the Flemish catalog itself on the right would eventually appear in 2005. So from beginning, beginning to end, these two collection catalogs took over 20 years to complete. And here's where the question of balance in the title of this talk comes into play. In one important respect, this prolonged period of gestation was beneficial, since I gained enormously from the multiple experiences I had learned about the collection, whether in the galleries, in the conservation laboratories, or filling curatorial files. This institutional knowledge was irreplaceable, and I believe essential for a thorough assessment of the museum's collection. Nevertheless, this 20-year statistic is really striking when one considers that producing these catalogs was a gallery priority, and that beyond my own efforts, I benefited from the energy and insights of a large number of wonderful staff assistants and interns. Many of them were from the University of Maryland, where I teach. Why, then, the extended period of time before these catalogs were completed? A simple answer is the demanding demands, the conflicting demands on a curator's time, much of it spent organizing temporary exhibitions, such as the Van Dyke Show. When push comes to shove, exhibitions and their company catalogs always win, since they have to be completed by a specific date. In Washington, the deadline for exhibition catalogs is one year in advance of the opening of a show, so that the team of editors, designers, and printers can be certain that the catalog will be available by opening day. The beginning of the exhibition era at the National Gallery coincided with my arrival at at this institution. In fact, to get to my office in 1976, I had to walk through the installation of one of the first blockbuster exhibitions, Treasures of King Tut. Um, And they kept changing the path, so I kept getting lost. I must admit, (laughs) not to get to my office. The enormous public response to this show demonstrated to trustees, directors, and corporate sponsors the potential of exhibitions to greatly expand museum visitation. Indeed, by the early 1980s, when curators were being urged to focus their energies on collection catalogs, the gallery had already developed this very extensive exhibition program. However, virtually none of the shows from the 1970s were conceived by in-house curators, and few of them featured works from the gallery's collections. Like King Tut, most were canned shows put together by outside curators and exhibition organizations. Many of these exhibitions, in fact, were politically motivated because of the gallery's proximity to Capitol Hill. And that's still the case, as we have this wonderful um, relationship with the Italian government right now to to allow um, the dying Saul to be here. During the 1980s, the gallery's exhibition became more focused on elucidating works in the collection, as, for example, God's Saints and Heroes from 1980. At the same time, expectations of exhibition publications radically changed. They became much more ambitious in scope. Color images became the norm, as did scholarly essays and extended commentaries. The advent of new technologies like fax machines, personal computers, and above all, the Internet that speeded up communication between scholars and partnering institutions facilitated such collaborations. Advancements in conservation and packing technologies, 
moreover, have allowed the transport of works of art that were previously impossible to borrow, um, such as the huge painting by Van Gogh that was in the Dutch cityscape show. Finally, the introduction of government indemnity programs helped alleviate costs that had previously hindered exhibition programs. Exhibitions have become a larger part of our lives, and for good reason. However, they take a great deal of time and energy, not to mention expense. Exhibitions started to become important vehicles for bringing new ideas about art and artists to scholars and the general public alike. Indeed, it turned out that they have the potential to be more thought-provoking and intellectually challenging than even the finest permanent collection catalogs. This potential arises from the fact that exhibitions are often collaborative efforts where the resources and expertise of colleagues from different museums are joined in the common uh, endeavor. And here's the Franz Hals exhibition catalog. And here is the table of contents. And you can see there are about 12 or 13 different authors from different places, scholars and museum people from around the world who have contributed to that uh, catalog. So this diverse team of scholars enriches the range of issues being discussed and displayed. And this emphasis on scholarly collaboration has also been a a transforming feature of the life of a museum curator, far different from the quiet ruminations I once enjoyed in the solitude of my study. Over the past 35 years, the exhibition program of Dutch and Flemish paintings at the National Gallery has been very robust, averaging about one show a year. Exhibitions come in all shapes and sizes and are mounted for a variety of reasons, but they all have enhanced our understanding of the permanent collection, and that's been part of my goal. Some large monographic shows have featured paintings by artists well represented in the collection, as Franz Hals, Anthony Van Dyke, and, of course, Johannes Vermeer. Some have been thematic um, shows, such as the Dutch Cityscapes, and some have been small focus exhibitions, such as the Tabrugan show, which featured our bagpipe player, a newly acquired bagpipe player, with the St. Sebastian from Oberlin. Other exhibitions feature artists and types of paintings not in our collection, such as the current wonderful little show of Civic Pride, which brings together group portraits by Howard Flink, on the, uh, the upper register in Balthasar van der Helst from the Rijksmuseum and Amsterdam Museum, respectively. And they are here for five years, I must say, very happily, since there are no group portraits in America. So this is a kind of a special um, thing that we have been able to arrange. <clears throat> These exhibitions certain, have certainly taken time and energy away from the production of ca- collection catalogs yet they have also enriched our understanding of the paintings in our collection. Hence, rather than seeing collection and exhibition catalogs as competing projects, I feel as though they generally work in tandem in a kind of fascinating symbiosis. Temporary exhibitions have a public face that a collection catalog will never be able to generate, however good the scholarship or well-produced the publication. The publicity surrounding the gallery, series of exhibitions described above, and here are the, the brochures for the Cityscape show and the Metsu show, <clears throat> have helped raise the profile of Dutch and Flem- Flemish cultures among art lovers in Washington as well as in much of the United States. <clears throat> Preparations for exhibitions 
have a huge impact on the scholarly content of an exhibition catalog. For example, prior to an exhibition, paintings are often treated in the conservation laboratories. For the Van Dyck exhibition, um, we undertook a systematic conservation program similar to that done with our Rembrandt's anticipation of the Dutch catalog. And here is Elena Grimaldi and Sarah Fisher, who used the, was head of our paintings lab, is working on this painting. And, and what is interesting in uh, this earlier view of it, in the middle of conservation, you can see there are added pieces left and right that were removed um, because they turned out to be much later additions in the 19th century. So now the painting looks entirely different shape than it was here in all uh, area, area prior to 1990, <clears throat> as well as being much more vivid in color. <clears throat> um, and Sarah and others in the conservation department wrote a wonderful essay in that catalog about their findings. And then these texts in, in turn informed the collection catalog of the Flemish painting. So all has come together to add to a wonderful new dimension. And similar um, efforts were done for the Vermeer show. For example, here is the woman with a balance as it looked before 1995, and this is the way it looks now after 1995. Um, one of the most striking differences you may notice is that this gold line, the gold elements on the frame have been totally painted out in uh, the old days, aside from being very dark and dingy in color. Um, now we have a much brighter also was added on to this painting has been reduced now in to reframed framed in to, to cover the areas that were once um, that had been added on to by a later uh, restorer. <clears throat> Another reason that the Dutch and Flemish collection catalogs took so long to produce is that new paintings were being acquired. Once that have given these collections a different look, a uh, far different look. <clears throat> In the mid-1970s, the Dutch collection numbered slightly over 70 paintings, while presently it consists of just over 130 paintings. Not only are more artists now represented, but the types and chronological range of the paintings are also much greater. <clears throat> Whereas the Dutch paintings Mel and Widener collected almost exclusively dated between the years 1630 and 1665, that was sort of the height of the Golden Age, um, we now have paintings in the collection expanding full scope of the 17th century. <clears throat> By the mid-1980s, it had become clear that the canon of artists that appealed to Mellon Widener, um, the Rembrandt Hals, Habermas, Vermeers, and Kalp, Albert Kalp, in the Masador direct again, the, the painting that had been <clears throat> uh, I mentioned earlier, um, that that canon was overly restrictive and the gallery slowly began to acquire, through purchase and gift, paintings by artists that these two founding fathers had not considered worthy of their collections or artists they'd never even heard of. But I must say that for me, this process of recognition, which probably began with the DeFries stories about Cops, um, Massa Dordrecht, and the Rijksmuseum, has been one of the most fascinating parts of my education as a curator. Over the years, I have learned much about the richness and diversity of artistic creations in the Netherlands in the 17th century. It is exciting to see works by artists I had actually never even heard of when I come to the gallery, 
um, such as Adam von Brain's um, wonderful winter scene here from the beginning of the century, or Gerhard Schalken's evocative depiction of a contemplative woman weaving a wreath of flowers from the end of the century. Um, to see paintings like these hang next to the great Rembrandt's Halses and Vermeers that Mellon Widener had collected earlier in the century, according to the then accepted canon of Dutch art. <clears throat> of course, these acquisitions would not be possible without the generosity of a whole new generation of donors, friends and donors of the gallery, um, to whom we all owe an enormous debt of gratitude. In 1985, <clears throat> a change in acquisition policies opened a new vehicle for purchase that had never been before possible. In that year, the Board of Trustees decided that the gallery could bid on paintings at auction up to a certain price level without first requiring them to be brought physically to the Board of, of Trustees for approval. Um, and that was a very restrictive policy until then because you really could never buy an auction because you couldn't bring the painting to the National Gallery to have the trustees look at it. But after that, we were able to do um, some amazing acquisitions. And the first acquisition under this new policy, I'm glad to say, was Ludolf Backhausen's Ships in Distress, this great, huge painting that's in the galleries. <clears throat> An acquisition that was significant for a number of reasons. Until then, the gallery had no true marine painting which was a huge gap given that the Dutch were so dependent on the sea and so adept at depicting it. Mellon and Widener, moreover, had a predilection for Arcadian scenes, nice, gentle, quiet, happy Dutch world. Um, and this painting introduced a dramatic image of sailors threatened with death in storm-tossed seas, a whole different type of, of image. Other major Dutch paintings subsequently acquired have similarly expanded the character of the collection. <clears throat> Among these was Henrik Goltzius' The Fall of Man, an artist from the beginning of the century, 1616, an artist whose name was not familiar to Mellon Widener at all. <clears throat> With the exception of Rembrandt's paintings, moreover, stories from the Bible or mythology by Dutch artists were of no interest for these collectors. But such topics were deemed to be suitable for the sensitivities of Italian or French artists, but not for the Dutch, who were supposed to do landscapes and um, things like that. Moreover, the classicizing style of this painting was unlike any other image in the Dutch and Flemish paintings collection, except for Peter Paul Rubens' um, great Daniel Lyons Den. And today, these two masterpieces hang comfortably together in the same room, a telling reminder of the contacts Goltzius and Rubens had in the 1610s. The construction of three cabinet galleries in 1995 had a huge impact on the presentation of Dutch and Flemish paintings. Because of these new spaces, the gallery is now able to acquire and exhibit small paintings that would have been unsuitable to large oak panel galleries. Were it not for the cabinet galleries, for example, we could not have acquired intimate still life paintings, a genre that neither Mellon or Widener collected. There are not one still life in the, those collections. They came to the gallery. Now the gallery is able to exhibit about 20 or 30 Dutch uh, flower and, and tabletop still lifes, both large and small. And here is a uh, wonderful Beauchart painting, for example, and this is an uh, Corta, uh, little Adrian Corta. These are the two paintings that I'm now details of. Um, 
that were recently acquired with funds donated by the Lee and Juliet Folger Fund. <clears throat> a much larger still life now hanging in an adjacent gallery. It was just hung last week is uh, the wonderful Peter Klaus banquet piece uh, featuring amazing peacock pie, uh, which was also done by the Folgers. This, the deal with these things is they would take, out, they would take off the, the neck and go, take out the wings and the tail and then use all to make them take a pie and then they would stick them back in afterwards and then deliver them. And in the cabinet gallery, you actually see an outdoor feast with somebody having one of these pies on the table with them. So... <clears throat> the cabinet guys have also proved to be an excellent venue for t- temporary exhibitions. The ability uh, to display prints and drawings and decorative arts in the wall cases in the middle gallery provides an opportunity to enrich our understanding of the paintings and the context in which they were made. As, for example, the ice scenes of um, Henrik Avakamp, and here we have paintings and drawings and ice skates uh, that we had in the show. Uh, and with Judith Leister's show, we had musical instruments. This was Judy Leister's 400th birthday party. So we had music, this is a theme, and we had musical instruments that we were there to enhance the, the whole sense of celebration to that wonderful event. And then sometimes these exhibitions lead to donations. And in fact, as a result of the Judith Leister show, we, we received as a gift from um, Mrs. Thomas Evans a wonderful small Leister um, painting of a young boy in profile. <clears throat> Dutch Italianate paintings was another area that needed strengthening. Andrew Mellon and P.A.B. Widener liked their Dutch paintings to look Dutch and were not interested in painters who were inspired by Italy or Italian art. The absence of important Italianate paintings was also recognized by Bob Smith, who served as president of the Board of Trustees from 1993 and 2003, and who was a great supporter of Dutch art. He and his wife, Clarice, donated this wonderful <clears throat> painting by Nicholas Berkham, this uh, view of an Italian port. And now the collection has a, a quite grand range of Italianate paintings, including works by Jan Asseline down in the lower left, um, Jan Bolt and Cornelius van Pulenberg. So it's, it's, it's kind of a wonderful view of the Dutch now exploring the world um, in the far reaches of, of Europe. <clears throat> a different issue existed with Harlem portraiture. Although Mel and Widener had both collected outstanding portraits by Franz Hals, they did not value the work of his contemporaries. We are fortunate as the Bliss family donated that Judith Leister engaging self-portrait in 1949. Nevertheless, a broader view of Harlem portraiture only occurred in 1998 with the purchase of Johannes Verspronck stashing Adrian Stilte as a standard bearer in 1640 um, and the acquisition of Jan de Bry's posthumous portraits of his parents, Solomon and um, Anna, one of several important Dutch paintings that Joseph McCrindle donated to the gallery. <clears throat> the Bryce stark double portrait image has a timeless quality, quite different from the immediacy of Hals's and Leister's portraits. An even more fascinating view of Harlem portraiture came in the 2010 acquisition of uh, Peter Soutman's sensitive portrayal of a young man, perhaps a shepherd, a gift from the Daryl Ruttenberg Memorial Fund. Um, this figure, which Salman executed in 1640, 
has a Van Dykian quality quite different from Hals's dynamic brushwork over Sprock's dashing portrait of Adrian Stilter. And amazingly, this portrait by um, Salzman was painted in the very year that um, um, Versprank painted that portrait, 1640. They're both from 1640. <clears throat> in recent years, a few masterpieces have come to the market as a consequence of Nazi looting after World War II. After the war, a number of confiscated masterpieces have been returned to the rightful heirs. Some families that received these works have in turn sold them, and as a result, works previously in museum collections have now come on the market. Fortunately, through the generosity of donors and the leadership of the trustees and the gallery's director, Rusty Powell, the gallery's been able to respond to this window of opportunity and acquire masterpieces that have given a new dimension to the Dutch collection. Uh, the first painting that came along this way is Solomon Ralstal's amazing river landscape with a ferry, <clears throat> which I first saw when I was a graduate student at the Rijksmuseum in 1969. <clears throat> and I think it's the finest painting he ever painted, and it's imposing composition and atmospheric effects unmatched in this other works. I had not realized that this painting, River Landscape with a Ferry, was not owned by the Rijksmuseum, but it had been placed there by the Dutch state, which had assumed possession of the painting after World War II. Previously, it had been owned by Jacques a prominent Jewish art dealer in Amsterdam who died in 1940 while fleeing to England. After the Nazis took over his gallery, and here is Goering, <coughs> coming out of the Goudstickers Gallery. <coughs> the painting was confiscated and sent to Hermann Goering. In, in 2006, the painting was restituted to Goudstickers' heirs, and we were able to acquire it after they put it up for sale um, with gallery funds and wonderful donation from the, the Folgers. Henrik Trebrugens, bagpipe player, <coughs> It was another restituted masterpiece that the gallery <clears throat> was able to purchase through the com combination of its own funds and the generosity of private donors, in this case, Greg and Candy for Zachary. <clears throat> Tobruggen and other Utrecht Caragistes all had been notably absent from the gallery's collection. Such works were not part of the canon admired by Mellon Widener. And until this painting's restitution from the museum in Cologne in 2008, I believe that acquiring any of Tobruga's iconic works would be impossible. <clears throat> However, it turned out that this painting had been acquired by the museum in Cologne at a forced sale in Berlin in the early 1930s, and it was restituted, and the gallery was able to acquire it at that time. These last two acquisitions involve restituted paintings, but in many ways the most moving story connected to the horrific events of World War II concerns Albert Kelp's River Landscape with Cows, <clears throat> which belonged to the Petchek family in Ausig in the Czech Republic. <clears throat> Prior to the arrival of the Nazis, the family fled their homeland, and um, I should just say here is um, the family at home with a painting on the wall. <clears throat> at the upper, uh, here at the upper, that's the painting there, the Kelp. <clears throat> the family fled. <clears throat> leaving behind a copy of the work in their home as a show of defiance against Hitler. And they really want me to emphasize defiance against Hitler. 
The family took the unframed painting with them as they traveled for over a year and a half through France and Spain, eventually making their way to Brazil and finally in 1940 to the United States. After the deaths of their mother in 1986, Elizabeth de Picciato and Maria Pecek Smith donated this wonderful painting to the National Gallery in appreciation of all that America had done for refugees and for the freedom and opportunities it had afforded to so many throughout its history. <clears throat> for all the reasons mentioned above, museum collections are rarely static. Hence, collection catalogs can quickly become out of date. Recognizing that fact, the gallery has sought to rethink the existing paradigm by, collecting, by creating an online catalog of the Dutch collection. This decision to do so was made shortly after the Dutch catalog went out of print in 2003. At that time, we decided it did not make any sense to reprint it since the gallery had made so many new acquisitions, had conserved a number of paintings, and important scholarly discoveries had occurred in the meantime. Fortunately, a few years later, the Getty Foundation announced an initiative to encourage museums to create online catalogs for their permanent collections. The National Gallery became one of nine museums in the United States and Europe that were chosen to, to participate in this initiative called the Online Scholarly Catalog Initiative, or OSCE. <clears throat> Our particular category was the transformation of a printed publication into an online catalog. <clears throat> and so this is what is, we're working on right now. <clears throat> and here is where the education of this curator has really been necessary. <clears throat> and where, for the first time, I have really felt a shifting of the generational divide. I have always benefited from the guidance of older mentors, such as Bob DeFries, and the friendship of contemporaries. But now, in this initiative, I am being guided by a younger generation of dynamic colleagues who have helped me envision the vast potential of this new vehicle for sharing information. It is an exciting new development in my curatorial life, and one I welcome and embrace with the greatest of enthusiasm. The process of creating this online catalog, which has engaged us all for the last five years, has been very exciting, but complex and demanding as well. It has meant revising all of the 90 entries in the 1995 catalog and writing new entries for the over 30 acquisitions that we have made since then. These new entries have been peer-reviewed to ensure their art historical integrity. We have thought carefully about the implications of this new vehicle for conveying information, recognizing that with this online format, the reading audience for the catalog will be expanded exponentially, particularly among members of the general public. Hence, summaries of catalog texts have been written for all those who do not want to read the full scholarly entries. <clears throat> to ensure that all aspects of the project were properly coordinated, we assembled, first under the leadership of Karen Sagstetter and then of Jennifer Hennel, a group of about 15 colleagues within the museum, including photographers, conservators, registrars, editors, and of course, our technical team, lovingly referred to as the tech boys, who know about advanced technologies. We also engaged a number of younger art historians to see what questions they might ask when coming to this website. The project resulted in new photography of all of our paintings as well as digitizing technical photos such as x-rays. 
We also wanted to provide, and this is through the worksheet of, of what one gets into the reader mode here, we also wanted to provide the ability to do searches on indexed terms, to read content and to cite this content. A number of introductory films have been made to discuss the collection, films that we hope will encourage viewers to realize um, that the paintings have fascinating stories that will enrich their viewing experiences in the galleries. We expect that this online catalog will go live this spring. <clears throat> it has been coordinated to work within the gallery's newly designed website, but will have functionality beyond that which is available in other parts of the gallery's collection. Over time, all of the gallery's collection catalogs, both new and old, will become part of the online catalog project. It is also suspect, expected that the Dutch online catalog shall be a prototype for other museums that develop comparable projects. <clears throat> I honestly do not think that this new paradigm of online catalogs provide any more time for curators to create both collection and exhibition catalogs, although I wish I could, clu conclu could conclude otherwise. Nevertheless, I do think that this new technology will greatly enhance our efforts to fuse the scholarly benefits gained from collection and exhibition catalogs. The scholarly process of assimilating and conveying information will become stronger and richer. I'm also excited about the greatly expanded opportunities that this online catalog will provide for educating a broad public about the fascinating character of Netherlandish art and allow for better access to our ever-growing collection, such as uh, our new Hontorst painting. I am convinced that this new mode of publication will create opportunities for students and scholars to engage in material in exciting ways that will inevitably bring new insights to remarkable artists whose paintings hang on the walls of the National Gallery of Art. Thank you very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.